Hello, my name is Stephen DeLuke, and you have tuned into Ears on Art, produced here at the studios of the listener-supported KCBX Public Radio, serving the central coast of California. For a number of years, you have been listening to co-host Chrissa Hewitt and myself talk with different artists, gallery owners, and others involved in the arts field about how they got into the arts, their history, and what motivates them. Well, we decided that in the next two programs, we're going to do a little bit of that about us. First, I'm going to interview Krissa. Krissa, first, tell us about your education. Boy, where did that start? Well, the art education probably really started at home with my father, but I'll give a little more succinct answer to that in terms of schooling. Had the advantage, certainly, of being in a school that as I remember, certainly had painting in elementary school and some of those things, but not a lot. And there were a couple of classes that my mom found that were private, outside of school type of things. There was an art history class in high school that was amazing. This teacher was the first one and really the only one that I ever had for art history who did not just dwell on dates and remembering the name of the image that you were looking at for the test. She wanted to know that you could distinguish between a so-and-so and a so-and-so. And the L.A. County Museum had just built its new facility on Wilshire, and we went there as a field trip. And I still remember exiting the elevator and looking across the room, and here was a Modigliani way on the other side of the room. And I was so excited that I knew who had done it. <laughs> it's like, whoa. But that was sort of it for me with art history. I just sort of moved on to other things. At UC Davis, where I started my college education, I took a sculpture class, as I remember, and a drawing class. And all of those were fine. But it wasn't until I got to Cal State Northridge where I really found disciplines, well, specifically metalsmithing, but initially ceramics, that really caught my attention. And how did you morph from ceramics to metalsmithing? Well, the ceramics initially was in the summer because I was going to UC Davis. And before I started that, I took a ceramics class and then came back the following summer because I lived in L.A. and took a second one and was finding it really exciting. And I loved having clay all over my clothes. And <laughs> But one of those summers, there was a small exhibit case in the hallway that happened to feed metal. Fortunately, the degree that I was pursuing, which was a secondary credential, required that I take more than one discipline. So I thought, well, that's easy. <laughs> and in those days, those classes were hard to get into. Fortunately, I was able to do it before too much time passed. During the first semester, my instructor brought his work into class one day, and one of the things that he had created was a small silver box. And I went to myself, whoa, <laughs> this is exciting. Jewelry's neat, but boxes, wow. So he allowed me to make a box that semester. I just stuck with it. I stuck with the ceramics as well. There was off-loom weaving. There was silk screening, different you know, fabric type of classes. There were a lot of things that were happening at Northridge that I really appreciated, but the metal is what stuck. And when did you graduate? I graduated officially in 71, and then I was 
not quite ready to go to graduate school because I didn't have much of a portfolio. And my instructor, Fred Lauritsen, really didn't believe in giving people his A-OK without a sense that they were going to do something. <laughs> so I was able to just take a metalsmithing class every semester for the next amounted to two years and create the portfolio and then was accepted at Cranbrook Academy of Art, which is in Michigan, just uh, north of Detroit. And when did your professional career start, your teaching career? Well, I had to get through the graduate program, so that was two years. And I had never thought of myself as a university professor. I was with a whole bunch of classmates in different disciplines who were eager to get teaching jobs. So all of us were trying to learn how to create resumes and what to do. So that's what happened. There was a book that had all of the art departments in the country pretty much listed, said what they taught. So I sent out, I think, about 300 resumes. There weren't too many full-time teaching jobs. There were some sabbatical leaves. So fortunately, San Luis Obispo was the one that was the most complete in terms of a full tenure-track position. And I certainly wasn't going to complain if they wanted me because I grew up in L.A. and I also have family in the Bay Area, so couldn't have been more ideal. And when did you start at Cal Poly? 1976. I was there to teach jewelry design and other metalsmithing classes, but I also taught a lot of other things. Clay, metal, wood, did a project in each of those disciplines that we taught for recreation majors and for home ec majors at the time. So then we developed the sculpture program, so I was doing that as well. In between those things, actually, the first year that I was here, I was put in charge of coordinating a juried metalsmithing exhibit. And the jurors were my mentor, Fred Lauritsen from Northridge, and then I asked Bob Coleman, whom I didn't know at that point, who taught at San Jose State. Well, it turned out that he was the one who was running a program in the summers in Denmark studying with silversmiths. Well, I hopped at that chance right away. So that was another wonderful bit of education that I did two or three times and then later on expanded into the marble carving to go to Italy. So, you know, there have been great offshoots of things like going to Denmark. Italy was another one of those things that just kind of happened by fluke. I was grading projects at the end of a quarter and my colleague, George Jersich, walked through the room and dropped something on the table and said, you ought to check this out, Krissa. And I said, what, George? And he said, carving marble in Italy. I went, right. <laughs> well, a little while later, I was kind of bored doing grading and went over and took a look. And it said no particular experience required. I had done some sculpture, but I had never carved marble. I had carved wood and... Off I went. Ended up doing that for nine different years over a span of time. It was certainly not just an eye-opening experience in terms of learning a new discipline. It was working with men whose lives had been spent since they were in their teens carving marble. And we didn't speak much of the same actual language, but we certainly were able to communicate and 
those summers are experiences that I will forever be grateful that I had. I learned that shaping metal, shaping stone, shaping wood, you could think could be quite different, but that there were many things that were very similar. And it helped me again understand that universality of experience. And I'm a firm believer that it isn't so much the material as the doing and the exploration. And so if things feel comfortable to me, then I have a good time. And painting is not one of the things that feels comfortable to me. So, <laughs> And so you were predominantly a full-time tenure-track professor at Cal Poly. Yes, that's how I was hired. And you eventually became department chair. Oh, for about three minutes. Um, <laughs> that was actually one year. It was supposed to be three, and just the politics of things made me realize that I wasn't going to survive two more. So I retired after 31 years of teaching, and almost within minutes, people looked at me and said, you already look better. <laughs> it's a very stressful situation. <laughs> Tell us a little bit more about your overseas experiences with the silversmithing and also with the marble carving. Well, the silversmithing, Denmark separates out into two fundamental approaches. One is that you're a goldsmith, meaning that you can work in any material, but you're basically a jeweler. So you're learning smaller work techniques. And then the other is a silversmith not necessarily using silver, but doing hammering and larger things. And fortunately, I was able to work different summers with each of those two professional people. And one of them, Ellen Breuker, was able to come here and teach a quarter. So she and I kind of traded being housemates. <laughs> <laughs> and on top of that, then we got to tour around and go to different studios and go to the George Jensen factory and things of that nature, which were just wonderful eye-openers. I don't think a lot of people understand that Denmark is pretty much the world center for silversmithing. Exactly. And because of that, they have much stricter rules about how you label pieces. Uh, this country, nobody cares how I stamp something. Nobody would ever check it. Now, in your jewelry store, I'm, you know, you know what you're buying and that it's appropriately labeled. But in Denmark, you get registered and then you can be visited <laughs> without warning, <laughs> you know, anytime. And people would come in and say, we need to check your gold and see if you are correct. Mm -hmm. Uh, carrot or whatever that you're stamping. That was kind of an impressive thing to realize that people were really caring about those things in a different kind of way. Did you have your own hallmark? I have a name that gets stamped okay. into my pieces. So mm -hmm. if that's as close as we come, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we have an M. <laughs> <laughs> well, mine says Chrissa. I figured you know, shorter than Sterling and uh, I'm never sure whether I'm Sterling Chrissa or Chrissa Sterling. <laughs> While you were in Italy, you did have the opportunity to interview Botero, who had a painting studio there. He had a painting studio. This is a world-famous from Colombia artist who is known a lot for his painting but also got involved in sculpture, which is why he ended up in the town Pietrasanta, where I went nine different summers to carve marble. And I learned one summer, to my delight, that 
somebody else who was working in one of the studios, not part of the class I was in, had befriended him. So I immediately said, hey, (laughs) can you get me an in? And so it turned out that Botero's home was just less than half a block up the hill from where I was renting. So that made it very easy. And he was very obliging. That year, which I think was 2005, was a year that he was having a major exhibit in Rome. My sister happened to be coming and meeting up with me. She was flying into Rome, so that made it easy. Part of the theme of that particular show was his commentary on the Abu Ghraib torture. And I found myself going, here is somebody who creates the most voluptuous, heavy-set figures that you can imagine. And how was he going to convey torture? And, well, he did. (laughs) There was no doubt about it. But it was just an interesting, in my mind initially, juxtaposition. I think it was interesting on that particular show that he focused on the victims. And it was not really the perpetrators that he was portraying. It was always the victims. Right. And he fell in love with Pietrasanta and had made a summer home there. And he also knew that because of some changes in the Catholic Church, a lot of the work that had routinely been done by these men whose job it was to create reproductions of Pietà or David or you name it, were finding less and less work through the studios that were hiring them. And somebody was wise enough to say, you need to be doing some contemporary work. So Henry Moore and some other folk started getting their work done in Pietrasanta. And Botero, some of it was marble, but a lot of it was bronze casting, which was also something that that town was famous for. So he was pleased to be able to put them to work and get something out of the deal. And he also painted the interior of a small chapel that was right in the heart of town as a gift to the town. So, you know, you never know when you get to meet the bigwigs mm-hmm. if they're going to just <laughs> sort of hold their nose as they're talking to you or whatever, but he was most generous. Who are some of your other favorite interviews? Well, that's a good question. Um, certainly, I think for both of us, having an hour to sit in Julia Child's living room and converse was something that I never could have imagined would happen. Uh, Bruce Beasley is a sculptor from the Oakland area, and I find myself quoting some of his thoughts fairly often, one of them being that you can't just sit around and wait for the muse to come in the middle of the night and start making things happen in your studio. His thing was work begets work. Good work usually creates good work, but doing nothing doesn't (laughs) was his philosophy. So One idea will lead to another. Exactly. So I've always enjoyed kind of thinking back of that conversation. And I think in general it's been a sense of just the generosity that people – have had in saying, this is who I am. I've found often that as we talk with people, they're often logically a little nervous. <laughs> Live microphones are not their favorite thing. But it's been very rewarding how many people end an interview with saying, this was so much easier than I thought, <laughs> or I'm not shaking anymore, 
or something to that effect. So that's been a, a plus. I thoroughly agree. As a matter of fact, like you, I think it's been an absolute privilege to be included in these people's lives. And the creative process is a very, very personal process. And it's really opening themselves up emotionally and psychologically to the public. And they've been incredibly generous with their time and their and sharing their talents with us. Absolutely. And I came to a realization a couple of years ago, I was editing one of our programs and just went, you know, this has been the most amazing education doing however many shows we've done. <laughs> and the excitement, as I was thinking about that, was realizing that it's really been so much about affirming the universality of the creative process. doesn't really seem to matter what discipline we're working in. The fact that we get stuck, the fact that we get excited, the fact that we get stimulated by things that we never thought would stimulate us. Whatever it is, it just seemed like those were often repetitive kinds of commentary that we would get. And and I've said this too often too, but it you know has been painful over the years as somebody working in what's called craft to be told that I'm not an artist. And so this has been a real validation of the fact that Again, the discipline, the actual material is not the issue. No, it's not. No, creativity is creativity. It doesn't make any difference which medium you're working in, whether it's writing or painting or sculpting or creating music. It's all the same process. I think that's really been a part of what you and I have tried to convey to listeners. We don't know who's out there most of the time taking us in, but that hope that that the concept that you're either born with this talent or that you can't draw a straight line with a ruler means that you haven't got a chance or that you can't draw means that you can't do anything. And I'm a classic example of somebody who can't draw, so I'm hoping that that debunks some of that. But the fun of recognizing that those stereotypes and those, I think, pretty destructive philosophies are things that we've been able to play with and maybe get some people to say, maybe I can try something. I don't know what it's going to be, but maybe I'll go try something. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Krissa, for informing us about your history and your talent. Um, next week, we get to reverse the roles. Exactly. We'll put Stephen in the hot seat. <laughs> As you will hear, Stephen also has explored a variety of medium, including clay but has found a real home as a painter. It's something I really can't do, so I really admire it. You have been listening to Ears on Art here on Public Radio, KCBX, for the California Central Coast. Co-host Stephen DeLuke and I have been enjoying a little trip down our own creative memory lane process kind of interesting being on the other side of the microphone, or at least on the other side of the conversation interview. So we hope you'll tune in next week for part two, featuring Stephen DeLuke. As always, both of us wish to thank you so much for listening. Thank you also very much for listening.